0: Um, sometimes you don't realize maybe quite what you have. Um, I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> excuse me, um, planning the spring conference for our fellowship of churches in the Northwest. And uh, we have a theme every year, essentially. Last year we did a theme on uh, multicultural uh, ministry, Raul went and led singing partly in Spanish, partly in English. We had speakers who spoke in Spanish and English and so on. This year, the theme is going to be on, on intergenerational ministry, as in young people and older uh, working together and, and uh, incorporating young people into the ministry. And we're talking about seminars, and they said we should, and I'm on this committee that's planning this, and they, they said we should have somebody... Uh, they said, does anybody uh, know anybody who's really doing a good job getting their young people incorporated into the ministry? And, and we you know, looked, talked a little bit, and you know, I just kind of thought what we were doing is just kind of average. Uh, and I said, well, we have, a, we have a, a worship team for Awana that's young people, and we have our young people play the piano in church, and, and you know, we've got some younger people on the worship team. We have people that are serving here and doing this and doing that and doing the other. And they said, you need to teach the seminar. So, catch the irony on this, will you? Okay, you know, Andrew, Andrew's a big, tall college kid now, but he started working for us. Andrew, where are you? How? He went downstairs. He, he was like 15 or 16 when he started work. we started paying him to, to work on our technology stuff. And so when I got home from the meeting, I went to Andrew, and I said, I said, Andrew, I want you to make a video showing all of the stuff that our young people do and I'll go to the seminar and turn it on. <laughs> he's, he, he's the product of what we've been doing and, and so I'm, and I think of Grace growing up to where now she's a utility player on the worship team. The piano or the keyboard or the violin or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's really great. And uh, we, should be, we should be proud of that in, our, in a sanctified way, and uh, encourage that. And uh, in my seminar, I'm going to show that video, and I'm going I'm to talk to the pastors and say, here's what you need to do. Get out of the way. Because this stuff has all just risen up naturally. I didn't have anything to do with any of it. And that just blesses me even more, so... So good job. Let's keep, uh, keep going because, uh, boy, we are raising up the next generation of servants, not only in music, but in other things, too. Well, uh, the last couple times I've gotten my oil changed, the service writer, when they came back, you know, they're always trying to sell you something, you know. That, that's the whole purpose of giving you a coupon for the oil change, and And so service writer comes back and says, well, your tires are just about, just about gone, just about ready to buy new tires. And I'm thinking, I just bought tires about three years ago. They can't be worn out already. And so finally, after I heard that several times, I went and got the paperwork out. And sure enough, I bought tires three years ago that were guaranteed for 99,000 miles. Have you ever even heard of such a thing? (laughs) Apparently, it was just a dream just uh, an idea that Pirelli put on paper. Hey, let's make it 99,000 miles, you know, because I've got 43,000 miles on my tires and they are down to the wear bar. And I'm thinking, that's no good. And so I'm thinking, "Ah, I got to get those tires because, you know, in the place where I bought them, they're going to give me about a half credit, but I still have to pay half. So I'm kind of delaying and dickering around and Thursday night we had men's Bible study and Wes Funkhauser says, uh, your back tires about flat there, bud. <laughs> and I gambled and waited too long. So I took it home and pumped it up, and the next morning I pumped it up again, and and I thought I better go straight to, to Les Schwab. So I go to Les Schwab and you know they're usually pretty timely on that stuff. I waited for an hour and a half. And thankfully the repair is free, you know, so you can't hardly look a gift horse and a mouse. Okay, so I go on my way, I get to work late, and I get a bunch of my morning work done. I'm getting ready to go out and go to lunch, and I go out, and that tire is sagging down there again. The same one. And you know, when you go to Les Schwab twice in one day, they make funny remarks about you. as though I can regulate what I'm driving on. (laughs) There are some things you should not put off because delay makes the impact worse. One of those is tires, and the other one is taking care of sinful anger. And that's what we're going to learn from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 21, we looked at the first couple of verses last week. We're going to continue on. Matthew 5.21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or empty head, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny." I want to talk about the impact of sinful anger today. And the first impact that we want to understand is this. Sinful anger incurs judgment from God. Sinful anger incurs judgment from God. And and here might be the most important thing I'm going to say all day. Sinful anger is sin. Now I uh, I know that's really revolutionary and radical, but it's important for us to call sin, sin. What we learned last week, as we looked at the first two verses here, is we understand that anger doesn't arise in a vacuum. While it can be righteous in its source, in other words, we can get angry because we see somebody being injured or hurt unjustly, there can be righteous anger. There can be righteous anger personally where somebody genuinely injures us. The thing that we most have to watch out for is the source of our anger and say, is it truly righteous or is it coming from jealousy, envy, hatred, or greed? And then we learn that, that wh- when anger is based in a genu- even if it's based in a genuine wrong, it can still be expressed in a sinful way. And that sinful expression of anger is summarized here. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. So even if, our, even if our sense of injustice is right, we can still sin with our anger on the expression of it. Anger can be sinful in its source, and it can be sinful in its expression, and we need to be honest enough to say that's a sin when it is a sin. On May 7th, 1931, back in the gangster era of our country, the first gangster era, a man who was known as Two-Gun Crawley, because he shot like this, was trapped in his sweetheart's apartment on the West End Avenue in New York City. 150 policemen and detectives laid siege to his top floor hideaway. They chopped holes in the roof. They tried to smoke out the cop killer with tear gas. Then they mounted machine guns on surrounding buildings, and for more than an hour, one of New York's fine residential areas reverberated with the crack of pistol fire and the rat-tat-tat of machine guns. Crowley, crouched behind an overstuffed chair, fired incessantly at the police. 10,000 people watched the battle, which was like nothing ever seen before in New York City. When Crowley was captured, police commissioner E.P. Mulrooney declared that the two-gun desperado was one of the most dangerous criminals ever encountered in the history of New York. He will kill at the drop of the feather. In fact, he had, just before this event, one of the people he had killed was a police officer who did a traffic stop, and he just killed him. Boom. While the police were firing into his apartment, he wrote a letter addressed to whom it may concern. (laughs) In his letter, he said this, and they found this note on him, and he, he did survive, and later he was taken to the electric chair. But he wrote this note and stuck it in his pocket, and it said, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. And he was sentenced to the electric chair. And when he arrived at the death house at Sing Sing Prison, he said, This is what I get for defending myself. Our ability to justify ourselves knows no boundary. And that's why we have to be very careful and honest and, and, and do our best to be honest and to look at the source of our sin and the source of our anger and the expression of our anger and say, is it sin, have I sinned? The reason our ability to justify ourselves knows no boundary is this very truth from Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Now, as we grow in Christ, our heart can become much more singular and sincere but, but the, the effect of sin is with us, and it tapers off as we grow in Christ. And so it's real easy to be self-justified, like two-gun Crawley, and say, I wouldn't do anybody any harm. What? And so when we come back to Matthew 5, verse 22, and Jesus is saying, now listen, you need to be very careful not just about physically murdering people but about the way you are angry with people because if you are so angry that you call somebody names that you insult them and you express your anger, you are in danger of hell fire. This is where one of the places we get the concept of fire being associated with hell and torment. He actually says the fire of Gehenna or Gehinnom which was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. They had a place. I mean, they didn't have, obviously, our modern methods of handling trash, and so they had a big burn pile, and it burned all the time. And he, he used that as an illustration of hell, which he says the fire does not go out. And he said, if your anger is sinful in its origin or its expression, you are in danger of hellfire. Now, that, that, that's a, that ought to be a scary thing because what he says is sinful anger can send you to hell. Listen to these familiar words. I know I've read them here a lot as I've preached, but there's a piece at the end that we don't pay as much attention to. We don't read it as often. Now, the works of the flesh, the natural things that come out of our humanity are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. These things are all part of anger as we talked about them last week. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, or splitting up. These words have to do with splitting up into groups to follow your own ideas. Envy, murder, drunkenness, revelry, and the like. In other words, he says, I'm not just making a list that you can check the boxes off. I'm saying things like this of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have all, I've also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds a lot like what Jesus just said. Those who practice such things. The, the word practice is, is the translation used in the New King James. The King James says those who do such things. I think the NIV gets the best sense of the word in this in their translation when it says those who live like this. Those who live like this. The question we have to ask about sin is this. Does it rule us or do we rule it? Are we angry people who live in anger and self-justify and look back and say, boy, I wish everybody else would get on board with my way of seeing things. Jesus said, if our anger is sinful, it may be an evidence that we are not a believer and we're on our way to hell. And that's the same thing written by the apostle Paul under God's inspiration here in Galatians chapter five. If our life is characterized by the practice of sin, then it is ruling us, and we are not the children of God. This is really clearly summarized in 1 John 1. God is light or or righteous, and in him is no darkness or sin at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we're his children, we're connected with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we're lying. It's not something that can be judged from the outside. It's something that you have to judge from the inside. Our deeds must match our words. We do have to claim Christ with words. We need to believe in Christ. We need to express that belief. We need to express that belief through baptism. But if those words genuinely reflect a heart of faith, then our new righteous nature from God will show in the practicing of truth. I think a contemporary word that gets us across is the word lifestyle. Is your lifestyle one of godliness or one of ungodliness? And specifically as we're considering the words of Christ in regard to anger, are you known for patience, self-control, and love? Or are you known for being an explosive person who goes off the handle? Do you embody this truth from James 3? The wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy. That is the opposite of the ungodly anger that Christ has been talking about. Full of good fruits without partiality without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, if we are righteous people, we will be pursuing peace. That doesn't mean it's always going to come, but but it's going to be the pursuit of our life. Are we characterized by that or are we just an angry man or a screaming woman who raises the emotion level to manipulate the outcomes in their life because we have no God on which to rely? If you're a person given to anger or any other sin, you need to take seriously this instruction from God. Examine yourself. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified or your life shows you are not a believer? You need to sit quietly before the Lord and, and, and consider the words of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a very stern warning from Jesus, but he says, listen, you need to understand that if if you are full of sinful anger, you may be on your way to hell, but you don't have to be. Sinful anger has the potential to bring God's judgment for the unbeliever, but for the child of God, what is true about sinful anger is this, sinful anger always interrupts worship. Sinful anger always interrupts worship. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, please. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, we're going to start in verse 1. Samuel, who was the prophet of God, he's speaking for God said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you over his people, over Israel. Therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek, another country, for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim: 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Am- Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, Agag king of the Am- Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed the, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, Agag and the best of the sheep and the ox and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, And were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and, de- and indeed he has set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord! I have performed the commandment of the Lord! But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears? and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, that's a reference to when Saul was chosen to be king. He he said, hey, I'm not up to this. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? You're chosen to be king. And did not the Lord anoint you to be king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag king of Amalek and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed or to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now I know that's a long passage of scripture to read in the middle of a sermon, but you need to get the whole context of those verses that we're pretty familiar with. We're familiar with verse 22, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices in obeying the Lord? But the context is Saul. God, you know, sometimes we might beg uh, ignorance, but God said, Saul, do this and this and this and this. Here's a checklist. Should be no doubt about it. And Saul went straight out and did part of it. And then he lied about it. And then he blamed it on the people. And then he blamed it on Samuel, your God, he makes reference to. Saul rebelled against God's command in order to worship him. <laughs> Is there anything wrong with that statement? That's what he did. Samuel said rebellion, you have done rebellion. It's like the sin of witchcraft. Saul rebelled in order to worship. Why did he do that? It's because Saul tried to substitute religion for relationship. Saul tried to substitute religion for relationship. God not only rejected the so-called worship that Saul was proposing, he rejected Saul. And Saul made the same mistake as many people do today. They believe that God is honored by religious activity. That is, coming to a church service, putting money in the offering, uh, maybe handing out a sandwich to the homeless down in Bellingham, or You name it. There's all kinds of things we do. But we must never think God wants the activity. He wants the heart first and foremost. This is the same way that the scribes thought. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, or cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. You ought to have done the, the tithe without leaving the others undone. You see, and when he talks about mint and anise and cumin, it, it, it would not have been a simple thing to tithe because it's a small, relatively small thing or a light thing, and you'd, you'd really have to work to say this is exactly 10%. And so they worked at that, but they didn't work at justice or mercy. And, and Jesus says, your heart is in the wrong place. They obeyed in form, but they did not obey in function or reality. It's the same thing that, that seems to, uh, God isn't interested in religious activity. He wants worship offered from a righteous life. And it's the same thing. Um, Oh, I've left a passage out. Excuse me. I'll back that up. I left a passage out, and let me just read it to you from 1 Corinthians 11. You'll be familiar with it. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, in a sinful manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world." Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's from 1 Corinthians 11, about the Lord's table. See, the same thing went along with the, went on with the Corinthians. They said, oh, we're having a worship service. We're having the Lord's supper. And, and the apostle Paul, by God's inspiration said, listen, look at, look at how you're treating one another when you have this worship service. He said, you need to get your heart right with the Lord. Because God isn't interested in religious activity. He wants worship offered from a righteous life, heart, mind, body, and soul. And so Timothy said, or Paul said a similar thing to Timothy. I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. One of the things that I find fascinating is. You know, these days it hasn't been much of a, much of a debate, but in, in, in the past decades it has been amongst those embracing a more progressive form of worship. We've got to stand, or we've got to raise our hands, or we've got to kneel down, or, or all these different things. Do you, do you see what the emphasis here is? Lifting up what kind of hands? Holy hands. Without, specifically he talks about wrath which comes right back to the words of Christ. No matter how pious you look, if what's in your heart isn't right, then God is not happy. The posture of your hands doesn't help your prayers without holiness. Your worship of God is not dependent on whether the music is old or new, upbeat or mellow. Your worship of God is not perfected by the right lighting or comfortable seating or a great visual and audio experience. Your worship of God is not accomplished by a great sermon or a heartfelt prayer. Your worship of God is dependent on the condition of your heart when you come through the doors. And in particular today, we could talk about any area of sin, but in particular, Jesus is talking about anger that is sinful. And he said, when you come to worship, and, and of course the imagery, he's talking about bringing the sacrifice. And so the imagery is, is of the temple. And, and a person who's coming to, to worship would have an animal on a, on a, a, a leash they're coming along and they're coming to the point where they're going to give the sacrifice to the priest to be sacrificed and, and the rest of the rituals carried out and, 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 and the you know the worshipper would receive some of that meat back to go and eat in celebration and so on. He says, when you come to that point, if you remember, uh oh, this brother's upset with me because I did something, because I said something. You know, one of the common concepts in this passage is the idea of, of simply something that is perceived by another person. And, and certainly if we have, if, if a brother has a perceived problem, we need to go talk to the brother or the sister. Certainly we ought to do that. But what Jesus is saying is, you need to be careful with your anger because you may do something. And if you haven't resolved that thing, when you come to put your offering in to sing your song of praise, You need to stop and go, wait a minute. It is not the action that will please God. It is the heart. And if my heart has sin in it that is unresolved, I need to take care of my sin. Isn't honoring God, the one who has saved us for all of eternity, isn't that worth humbling ourselves and admitting the wrong we have done? Doesn't our savior deserve our sincere worship, even though it requires self-crucifixion? You know, Jesus did say, you gotta pick up your cross and follow me. And uh, you know, as they say, if, if it's not bad enough that I'm preaching, now I'm gonna step on your toes. Let's back up this whole worship thing just a little bit and say, who are the people we probably most need to make things right with before we worship? Maybe somebody in our own family. Maybe even because on Sunday morning when you were getting ready, you were getting on them and getting angry about something. And it needs to be made right. Otherwise, your song hits the ceiling and comes back down. The important thing that that we've got to take away from this is is this, this scripture. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give a place to the devil. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Clearly, God wants us to keep short accounts. I knew a man many years ago in another church who was a leader in the church and he didn't take communion for quite a while. And at some point, I think his wife said something to me and said, yeah, so-and-so's got something that's bothering him, so he's not taking communion. Does that seem like what God intended when he said, if you come with your gift of worship, and something is wrong, go and take care of it before you worship? Does it sound like what Jesus was saying was, well, it's okay to be angry without cause as long as you just don't worship. You can hold on to that grudge. You can hold on to that bitterness as long as you don't come and do something religious. No. Come on. Clearly what what Jesus was saying was, look, take care of things. Keep short accounts. Be right. As Romans 12 says, as much as depends upon you, be at peace with all people. We should never wait till the beginning of a worship service to right a wrong, but it's better late than never. We should not lose sleep over broken relationships. We should fix them. We should not be comfortable with bitterness. If we've grown comfortable living with bitterness, there's a problem. We've got to forgive. We should take care of sin immediately so that our walk with the Lord is as constant as humanly possible because sinful anger interrupts worship. The third thing that Jesus says here is this, sinful anger invites loss. It invites loss. Now I hope I hope you... Uh, I hope you understand the subtleties in the words here. Sinful anger carried out by an unbeliever does incur judgment. Sinful anger will interrupt worship, but sinful anger here could bring loss. It invites loss. It doesn't guarantee loss, but it invites loss. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. Interesting that uh, the Corinthians... Uh, had both of these areas of problem that Jesus refers to First Corinthians chapter six, verse one. Dare any of you dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more are things that pertain to this life if then you have judgments concerning things pertain to this life do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge I say this to your shame it is so that there is it so that there is not a wise man among you not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another why do you not rather accept wrong why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated no you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren now what he's talking about here is the idea of a Christian taking another Christian to court to settle what would ostensibly be a civil matter. You know, somebody's done you wrong in a transaction or whatever, and they're going to go to court to settle it. And he says, that's wrong. That's wrong. But the, the, the part that I, that I want to focus on is the part that, that really correlates with what Jesus said. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves have done wrong and cheat. You do these things to your brethren. He's essentially saying you are in a a lawsuit with somebody. You're going to the secular court to have a problem resolved. And the truth is you did wrong. You did wrong and you will not let God's people help you resolve this. You're going to the secular court. And so Jesus puts it this way in Matthew five, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Then he goes on to say, and, until it's all paid for. Surely you will by no means get out till you pay the last penny. Now, why does God talk this way? Why does God say, let yourself be cheated? Why does he say, admit you're wrong? Here, I think, is the big point. Sinful anger is blinding. somebody does something and boy we are angry and so we start acting out of that anger and we start thinking and talking and behaving and on and on and in this case it leads all the way i'm taking this guy to court you know and uh. and jesus said you better be careful you better be careful, you might get to court and the judgment might go against you. And I don't think Jesus is primarily concerned about the merits of the legal argument. I think what he's saying is, do you realize how you have become blinded by the sin associated with your anger? John put it this way, he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Sinful anger is blinding. James described the the impact of sinful anger this way. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion, confusion and every evil thing are there. Sinful anger is blinding, as is every other area of sin for that matter. And, and we have to be aware of that. And make sure we are not fooling ourselves from John Philip's commentary on 1 John 2, 11. He that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whether he goes because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Darkness does that. The classical biblical example is King Saul who was jealous of David the dark chapters of Saul's life began when David won the applause of the nation for going into the valley of death to destroy Goliath, the Philistine giant. For a while Saul seemed to have struggled with his malice, for a while Saul struggled with his malice and ill will, but it grew, his malice and ill will grew until it dominated his whole life. Until he forgot everything else even allowing the administration of the kingdom to fall into ruins. He hated those who loved and supported David, even his own son Jonathan, whom he tried to kill in a fit of rage. He brooded on his dislike, ignoring the growing Philistine threat to his kingdom. His life degenerated into a mad crusade to hunt David down. He made at least two dozen separate attempts on David's life and he massacred an entire colony of priests out of suspicion that they had sided with David and helped him escape. On two occasions when David and Saul, David had Saul in his power and let him go, Saul owned up to his wrongdoing but was soon back at his old tricks again, planning crusades and campaigns to conquer David. Saul hated the man who was really his best friend in the truest sense of the word. He went from one dark episode to another, blind to everything else until at last, jealousy, fear, rage, and malice took over his entire existence. He ended up in total darkness, consulting a witch and dying as a suicide on his own sword. He that hates his brother walks in darkness where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there if you are going to court in a blind rage you might just end up on the wrong side of the decision by the judge Christ said it would be better to be reasonable and settle your dispute humbly You might be wrong, but you cannot see clearly because you're so invested in your anger. I had a friend who hurt his shoulder. Uh, I think he tore his rotator cuff or something like that. Did it at work. And he waited for a year to go to the doctor. Uh, He was the kind of guy who kind of thought, you know, kind of the old, the old thing we used to say that the coach would always say after every injury, walk it off. You know, yeah, it'll be okay, it'll heal, you know, whatever, whatever, So after a year, it wasn't healing. And he went to a doctor, and he went to a very good doctor, and the doctor said, okay, yeah, we'll do surgery and repair that thing. But when he woke up from surgery, the doctor said, i got bad news. You waited too long, and I can't repair it. Muscles had atrophied, things that moved around, whatever it was. The impact of sinful anger does not improve with time. Time does not heal all things. We need to make things right as soon as possible to preserve the blessed quality of our relationship with God and those around us. Heavenly Father, help us. We're proud, we're fearful, sometimes we're angry. Help us, help us to not let the sun go down on our wrath. We do not want your chastening. We want to live in your blessing. Help us to do that. I pray in Christ's name, amen.